Father, we give you thanks for all the gifts that you have given us. In fact, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to fully recognize all of the good gifts that you've given us. There's so many that we all uh, kind of default overlook that we take for granted. And I pray that, that as we recognize the gift of life, the gift of being a creation, the gift of your love and, and sustaining love, that we would channel that into worship, that we would channel that into the ability to enjoy who you are and what you do and have done and will do for us. And that also would channel into us sharing that enjoyment, that worship with the people around us. This morning, as we worship together, Father, I pray that you would bring our community closer, um, both to one another and also to you, to the the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that we would take our place as adopted sons and daughters, invited into the love of the eternal God. I pray that you would open our minds up, that you would challenge us and convict us, that as we continue to study the teachings of Jesus, that we would continue to challenge ourselves and push ourselves to really think through and take seriously what it might mean to be someone who follows Jesus in a world today that often holds opposite assumptions, in a world today where there's a chance of being excluded or ridiculed for doing some of the things that Jesus seemingly plainly teaches us to do. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see him as our Lord, not the Lord of our personal lives or our mental lives, but the the Lord of all of life, wherever we are, in whatever role that we are functioning in. Father, we, we just pray that you would do what you've promised to do, which is to conform us into the image of your Son. And we pray that there would be as little roadblocks along the way on that process, that we would be able to faithfully just take step after step until more and more we look and act and talk and worship like the Son that you sent for our salvation. You're eager to be taught by him this morning. And so that my words disappear and let your son's teachings take over as we worship through the word. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that all God's people prayed. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have not yet been offended, I assure you it's coming your way. In fact, I would probably guess that at some point over today or the next couple of weeks, you will be offended. Um, and in some way, that's a goal of mine. In some way, it's not. I never meant to become the Christian who offended other Christians, um, but seemingly a few stances that I've been convicted of when I started um, schooling uh, in theology and in the scriptures and in grad school and some of my favorite authors. Um, over time, five, six, seven years, I came to some conclusions that I became pretty convicted of. Uh, and what I found out very quickly is most Christians are not convicted of those conclusions. In fact, most have not really even thought about it. And they react kind of violently angry to the suggestion. Um, and so I would be surprised if you're not offended by some of this. Um, but in a way, I think that is an okay goal. Not in terms of me trying to be a jerk or get attention, but in terms of if you worship a God who agrees with all of your opinions, you're probably worshiping yourself more than God or at least your own image of God. So even for me, with a conviction and convictions that I hold very deeply, right, I try to, the best I can, remain humble and open-minded for God to surprise me. And for me to have to go, look, I thought this worked out every other way, but God is God and I'm not. So I'm going with His direction. There's this thing that, that theologians... Um, put together to kind of label the, the society that we exist in. They call it the unholy trinity. So these are like false gods that people usually worship in society. 
Um, they they actually had names in Greek society and the Roman culture, um, but now it's just more kind of a, a ethical philosophical categorization. Um, in the Roman times, um, they were called Mars, Mammon, and Venus, and they represent um, kind of historically what humans are drawn to worship, where we're drawn to give our time and allegiance and money and 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 just our lives to, um, and so. We've already seen Jesus attack two of these three gods. And again, maybe some of us were offended, or some of us just didn't quite get it. We didn't quite like it. Maybe some of us just were like, I don't know how I can apply this to my life in a way that's not so radical that I really feel uncomfortable. Um, and so he's gone after Mammon, um, the god of money. <clears throat> he's gone after um, Venus, the god of sex. Um, and today he's going after Mars the God of violence and war. And he'll actually do this to finish off our six theses and antitheses that we have going on. The last two are about um, non-retaliation to those who persecute us and loving, actively loving our enemies. Um, And it's seemingly structured in such a way that these last two, which are very similar, right? It's kind of hard to separate the differences out between them, but yet they each get two of these structures um, are kind of serving like the climax of these these theses and antitheses um, as Jesus is showing how he fulfills the law and not abolishes it. It kind of comes to a climax in this is how we treat people who treat us badly. This is how we treat people in a Christ-like and in a God-like way. And so, for whatever reason, I don't know, the god of Mars, the god of violence, seems to be one of the gods we protect the most. And I think maybe it's just because it hasn't been attacked as much from the pulpit or in writing. Um, Christians are very used to hearing things like, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't, don't commit adultery, um, try not to get divorced, things like that. Um, we might not take it seriously, you know, it might go in one ear or the other, but it's things we hear all the time. So when someone gets up and says it, it doesn't really bother us, right? Even if we don't agree. Um, same with money. We tend to hear that a lot, uh, usually in a negative way, because churches are just like asking for money every Sunday. And so something is going on there with that relationship. Um, but there's very few churches and pastors who will call out um, violence in different forms and who will call their church or community to a very radical way of living in a world. Um, from just childhood on, we kind of assume that violence is the way of the world. That without violence, there's only chaos and destruction. Without violence, there is no justice. Um, and Jesus will attack these assumptions. Um, and so we're going to actually spend a few weeks at least three over just these two theses and antitheses. And what I want to do just this morning is set a kind of historical um, viewpoint for this, this fifth thesis and antithesis, and then give a kind of a foundation for where we'll go later on. And so I, I'm just going to really try to explain the context Jesus is talking in and how his original listeners might have heard this. And then we'll get eminently practical as the weeks go on. So we will have a sermon about war nationalism. And we will have a sermon about the death penalty. And we will have a sermon about self-defense. And as we'll see, these are all questions that get raised from the things Jesus is saying. Um, and so, but today we're, we're just going to try to run through this first one and, and get the historical kind of foundation for Jesus' teachings before we move on to some of the more applicable current day issues that we might have. And there are lots of questions to have after we read these. Um, So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 38. This is um, number 5 out of 6 of these theses and antitheses. Jesus says this to his audience, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We're probably all familiar with that phrase, right? It's a pretty common idiom. Actually, globally, it's common. Um, And uh, I've sat in more than one youth group uh, Bible study where when we went around, I was like, what's your favorite kind of like lesson from the Bible? 
the kid has gone like eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And I'm like, oh no, you really got to keep reading the Bible because that gets, there's an addition to that eventually in the form of Jesus. You've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. We mentioned in the very first sermon that some of Jesus' commandments sound unethical. This one on face value sounds unethical. Do not resist the one who's doing evil. So if you see someone hurting a child and you're walking down the street, do not stop that. Do not resist that. Or in a global conflict, if people are being massacred and genocide, do not resist that. Let's keep reading, though. But I say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A lot of famous phrases from here, turn to the other cheek. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Another pretty classic idiom. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now I've argued that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, most of Jesus' ethical teachings are actually structured in three forms. There's three layers to them. We normally just see two, the thesis and the antithesis. And we focus on the antithesis, and that's generally the most unrealistic part of the teaching. It's the part where we're like, that's just impossible. Even if we wanted to do that, it's not going to happen. And so it makes us try to do interpretive wiggles to get out of what Jesus is trying to get at. Um, I've argued that there's, there's three layers. There's usually the traditional righteousness, Jesus points out, then this new command, which generally points out a vicious cycle humanity has gotten itself into because of the old command. Um, and then he gives us transforming initiatives. He gives us actual actions that we can take, like today. Small little steps that will slowly but surely get us to and get us closer to what once was extremely unpractical, which would be its antithesis. So let's start the traditional righteousness here. Jesus points it out. You've heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is a very common saying in the Old Testament. And it appears more than once. Um, it is not exclusive to the Old Testament. So most of the ancient laws that we have from ancient civilizations have something similar to this. Um, this law of retribution, um, equal for equal, tit for tat. Um, but the Israelites have this as well. Exodus twenty one twenty five says this, If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And then there are other versions of this command that kind of amplify it and put it in a different angle. So listen to this in Deuteronomy 19.21. It's a little shorter, but more expressive. It starts with this sentence, Show no pity. You might put an exclamation mark after that. For anyone, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. Now, the seemingly point of these instructions is that justice requires retribution. These, these are justice commandments. Um, how do we have a just society? There needs to be punishments. There needs to be um, deterrence. There needs to be ways to curb evil when people commit it. Um, and again, throughout history, we've assumed one of these ways would obviously be to inflict some punishment and violence back on others. And I I'm sure it works as a deterrent if we had this as a strict judicial law, right? I'd be very careful how much I hurt you. <laughs> In fact, I think like most elementary boys operate on this principle. I don't know if you've seen this or hung around with them, right? But you might actually kick another kid in a place where they don't want to get kicked, and you're like, uh, yeah, free shot. Here you go. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And after that, we can move on. Civilization, society, our little community keeps going. Um, so there have been some suggestions here um, about what exactly is happening in this passage. Because we've argued, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in most of these passages, we've seen that Jesus doesn't contradict the law. He really just takes it to God's original intention. He takes it a little bit further towards God's heart for humanity. He, he kind of raises the bar. He doesn't contradict it. And so you could read... Some of these Old Testament passages with the eye-for-eye law 
as a way of curbing retribution. So as a way of saying, God does not want retribution, and so I'm going to put a limit on it so that you can't go much further. So in this scenario, right, I can only get back at you with what you have done to me. So Jake cuts my left arm off. I slice his left arm off. And we're good to go. No one talks about it. We form a support group for people without left arms. Everything's good to go. But I cannot react to Jake cutting my left arm off with shooting him in the forehead, right? Then I would be punished. I would be shot. So it, it, it slows down retribution. And if you understand these laws in this way, Jesus, again, is just doing the same thing. If you understand that this law was not meant to encourage retribution, but to restrict it, then you see Jesus taking it further by saying, let's restrict it altogether. Let's take it further. Let's raise the bar on what we practice when it comes to retribution, how we think justice operates in the world. But more and more scholars are pointing out in other places in the Old Testament, this is a prescription. This is a command. This is, this is something that like a judge would command you to do, not just a don't do anything more than this. The Deuteronomy passage again, right? Show no pity. If anyone takes an eye, an eye again, a tooth, a tooth again, a hand, a hand again. The implication would seem to be like, even if it's your mom, your spouse, your kid, your best friend, doesn't matter. If anyone does something to you, the way we preserve justice is you will or somebody will enact that same retribution. If that is the case, and it's, again, different passages seem to point at different, different um, kind of motives here, but if that is the case, then it is true that this might be the one thesis antithesis where Jesus seems to be contradicting the law, where he takes a prescription for retaliation and just completely rebukes it. He says, this is not the way it will be in the kingdom. And then he gives his commandment. Do not resist the one who is evil. This would be his, um, his statement about the traditional righteousness, his, um, his diagnosing the vicious cycle that happens. Um, when he talks about the one who is evil, and in our next passage, when he talks about loving your enemies, both of these words are commonly used to refer to the Roman Empire. So most Jews, not all Jews, but at the time they were subjugated by the Roman Empire, treated them very poorly, wanted to fight the Roman Empire, wanted to take up arms and violently overthrow the Roman Empire. In fact, the, really the first way I got on to this whole thing about nonviolence was by studying the historical Jesus and realizing that so many of his statements were actually in context, historical context, statements about trying to get the Jews to stop trying to fight the Romans. Where he says, if you keep trying to fight them, they're going to destroy you completely. There's another way forward. And in fact, that's what happens. Right after Jesus' death, a few years later, they start another war and they get just completely washed away. Jesus is vindicated in his teachings there. And it was actually studying the historical Jesus talking to these people that first got me thinking like, oh, wow, maybe there's some like bigger paradigm here that Jesus wanted to teach. Um, when he says, don't resist the evil one, most likely he's talking about um, Roman enemies. Um, it's possible it includes also personal enemies, village squabbles. One of the ways people have tried to interpret this that's not as large ranging of meaning application is that Jesus is only referring here to personal parts of our lives. So he only wants villages to stop squabbling with each other. He's not talking to about like actual political or public enemies. Um, there's lots of problems with this way of interpreting it. One would be, can you separate your life that way? And if you could, can you separate out Jesus' involvement in your life that way? To where I can, yes, obey Jesus' commandments in my own personal life, but then once I'm in public or serving the government or something else, then I have to obey somebody else, even if it means disobeying what Jesus said. One, I don't think you can do that, right? Even your personal life is public. What you do, who you are, affects your children, affects your neighbors, affects your coworkers. I don't think there's such a thing as what we think of this individualistic, just personal life. It's just me. 
and my actions don't affect anybody else. Second, I think that's a bad way to understand the, the reign of Jesus. Jesus calls people to follow him at all times, in all situations, despite whatever role they are holding. Um, don't resist the evil one, Jesus says. Another thing that's helpful in understanding what Jesus is trying to say here is that most scholars are agreed that there's more nuance to this verb um, to not resist than it is presented in most translations. The idea is you find this verb in other warfare practices, and in generally speaking, it's a very common way of interpreting this word to mean to not resist in the same way. So this would be like when Paul tells us in Romans, don't repay evil with evil, repay evil with good. In fact, I think it's in RSV, he just straight up translates what I think is the nuance of this verse, which is don't um, resist the one who is evil with evil. Um, We might call this a third way. Jesus is suggesting, I believe, a nonviolent resistance. We have this false dichotomy Um, which serves the God of Mars, that when something bad is happening, you have two options, fight or flight. And when we think of nonviolent people, we often think of them as passive, as people who just let injustice happen. And I was talking to a buddy on Saturday, and there might be a historical reason for this. Um, The Quaker movement, part of the Anabaptist movement, very well known for their pacifistic stance towards things. But as a community, they're also a separatist community. They, they largely withdraw from the world. And so people have historically associated this teaching of nonviolence with uh, kind of irrelevance to the world. Um, but if you understand it as nonviolent resistance, then you might see it as activism. You might see it more as our younger generation. Um, a lot of people my age and, and under have gotten much more infatuated and, and kind of um, centered in on these kind of commands as central to the Christian life. Um, yet they use them in an activist way, in a, in a Martin Luther King Jr. way, right? Not, we'll let this happen. No, we're going to creatively, aggressively, and coercively resist. But we're not going to do it with violence. And we're going to be willing to be hurt because of it. In fact, there was a thesis I read not too long ago that examined some of the most transformational moments in history and made the argument that most of, if not all, of the greatest moral transformations in history, in a culture, in a country, in a nation, in a subgroup, have been modeled on, intentionally or unintentionally, this practice of nonviolent retaliation, nonviolent resistance. Obviously, Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement, but you can think of Gandhi, um, you can think of Desmond Tutu in South Africa. There's lots of examples of this. Um, and many of these people actually do intentionally model these um, public practices after Jesus' teachings in a way that might surprise you how, how much they actually take from these passages here in Matthew and in Luke and in uh, the rest of the Scripture. Um, the vicious cycle that Jesus is identifying here is, I think, that violence begets violence. I think that's the basic rule of violence, right? If Brad punches me, even though I'm a nonviolent person, my whole body, my whole emotional system is going to tell me to clench my fist and punch him back and try to hurt him a little bit harder than he hurt me. And then once I punch Brad back, his body is going to react, his mind's going to react with, well, you're a little kid, I'm going to punch you back even harder and it's going to hurt even harder, right? Think of even our modern warfare scenarios. It's super interesting. Most of the countries we're in conflict with did not start, that conflict did not start in the last 5, 10, 15 years. They're generational fights. Kids are growing up hating other countries for whatever they've done to them. And so then the grandparents and the grandparents of those grandparents carry on this back and forth of war and violence, killing innocent people along the way. It just seems how the world works. Violence begets violence. And Jesus steps into the process and seems to suggest the only way you can break that cycle of violence is to not let it keep going through you. It's when you get hit, you turn the other cheek. You allow 
evil to do its worst on you and you do not pass it on to somebody else. In fact, you pass good on after that. And the cycle's broken. Brad punches me and I give him some flowers and a nice note. (laughs) And he's probably not going to punch me again. Probably. (laughs) Seems like a nice guy. (laughs) Flowers might be a little weird. I'm a classy guy though, Brad. You break that cycle, and if you break it with generosity and goodness, who knows what might happen? Things might change drastically. And then we get to four examples Jesus gives us. And these are, I think, not super specific examples, as if this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of the thousands of years until I come back, but as specific, concrete examples that should spark our imaginations and thinking about how we might react to all kinds of different evils and injustice and struggles that we face throughout life. Um, N.T. Wright, a scholar, wrote that the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about more rules to follow. It's about discovering the living God and the living and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves not to the, or to the world that needs it so badly. And we've, we've mentioned this. We'll see it with the four rules Jesus is the best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is the person who does not resist the evildoer with evil. And our job is not just to add more rules that seem unrealistic to us, that seem impossible to us, but to slowly but surely learn to see that this man is the living embodiment of God. And in his suffering, nonviolent resistance, In his death and resurrection, we see the love of God displayed and are called to live into that love and share that love with others. Jesus is offering to us, I think, a new kind of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice, a a third way between fight or flight where we can resist evil, but in a way that's nonviolent. It is still about justice, um, but it is about us using creativity, even aggression, coercion, um, nonviolent resistance um, to, to stand up um, and, and change injustice, even if it involves our suffering and perhaps death. So his first one, he says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is best illustrated as an example, but I haven't practiced with any of you, and I don't want to actually get hit. So I want you to imagine... Let's say the typical person is right-handed. And so if they're going to strike you, the first one's going to come with their right hand. And they want to slap you. But they're slapping you on your right cheek. Using your right hand, how is someone able to slap you on your right cheek? Backhanded. It's a backhand strike. A backhanded slap in the first century and still kind of today is just as much of an insult as it is an injury. In fact, there are certain Jewish communities that um, taught that the left hand was only used to unclean, for unclean things. You can imagine certain like hygienic situations where you use your left hand. And so generally, you would only want to touch people with your right hand. Um, in fact, there's a community in Qumran, um, those people who had the Dead Sea Scrolls, they would actually ban you from the community for 10 days if you gestured with your left hand. Because it was unclean. You just didn't want to do a whole lot of public things with your left hand. We've got hand-washing stuff now. It's not as big of an issue. But to backhand someone is to injure them and to insult them. This is something you would do to a slave, to a peasant, to an inferior. This is something you would do to say, you are not on my level. This is something you do to humiliate a person to drop them to their knees in cowardice and submission. It's something you would do if you've subjugated a group of people as an empire. You would backhand them. Jesus doesn't say slap them back. He doesn't say sucker punch them. He doesn't say revenge is best cold, so sit on it for a few days, come up with a great plan, and then really get them. He says immediately, turn your cheek. Let them hit you again. Now, if I've just backhanded somebody on their right cheek and I turn to them the other cheek, what's their immediate option to hit me again? 
their left hand. They're put in a position where they might be shamed for hitting someone with their left hand. They're also put in a position where they can no longer backhand you and would have to slap you in a way that affirms your equality with them. The position that you are as human and as important as they are. Now, there's lots of things that might happen. They might hit you still. Again, this all involves a willingness to suffer. It does not guarantee any results. They might have you flogged for being cheeky, um, pun intended. But despite any of that, right, you have done what? You have asserted that I am human. And if you're going to treat me with injustice, you will do so as you are doing to another human being. In a sense, you've turned the tables on them. You've reclaimed your dignity and, and humanity. Um, so one way this might be applicable in today's society, right? Say you have a boss who's overbearing, micromanager, and has some sexual abuse stuff or physical or verbal abuse. Um, instead of, right, setting up this huge office trap to hurt him or, or going psychopath for a minute and going in, you know, and, and causing some real violence, this might be something that would involve, like, going and talking to a news reporter. You might be interested in cases like this, an instance like this. It might involve an interview on TV where you're not lying and you're not trying to get the person in trouble. You're just describing what's happening. Yeah, my boss touches me in this weird way constantly. It makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I don't know if he should be allowed to do that. You're asserting your humanity in public. You're saying, I'm not your inferior for you to do whatever you'd like to do with me. And guess where all the empathy goes at that moment? to that person giving that statement. And guess where all the pressure is going to be? The tables are now turned. The guy who thought he was inferior and could do whatever he wanted to you now is going to be forced to make big changes to apologize publicly and or resign. A creative, even aggressive maybe, way of resisting but without violence, not in the same way. The second one, Jesus talks about a lawsuit. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is a fascinating one as well. Um, so males generally only wore two layers of clothing. Um, an underlayer, like underwear, long johns, and then an outer, outer garment. Um, if someone's suing you to take your tunic, which is your outer garment, um, which you probably use for a blanket at night, um, this means you have nothing else for them to take from you. You're the poorest of the poor here. Um, and the person suing you is probably an empirical person, a Roman citizen or soldier, and or a rich Jewish person. Um, so already you get a hint of injustice here, right? Like, I'm taking you to court. You don't have a car for me to take. You don't have a house for me to take. You don't have retirement savings for me to take. But I like that polo that you're wearing, and so I'll take that. Jesus says this. When they're asking for that, they're suing for that, give it to them. And then go further. Be quote-unquote generous and give them your undergarment as well. Strip naked in the court. Expose the system for what it is. Now, in Jewish customs, it was shameful to be naked in public, but not just for the person who's naked, also for everyone else who is seeing the nakedness and or caused the nakedness. There are actually Jewish laws about not taking people's undergarments. It was seen as the ultimate injustice. Like, seriously? You can't treat someone with enough respect to at least allow them to keep their underwear on as they, they you know, die of coldness tonight? So you stand there stark naked in front of the court, and the message is, look, I've given you literally everything I have. If you want my body, you can have it. Like, you can kill me. I don't know what else you want here. And again, where does all the empathy go? To the naked guy or girl. And where does all the pressure go now? People start questioning things. I mean, yeah, that was a really jerk move of you. You really were going to take the two pairs of clothing that he owns? Again, he might do it. might get away with it. You might have a long walk back home to your village. But you've asserted in a powerful way your humanity. You've turned the tables on the oppressor. And it did not involve countersuing, did not involve any sort of uh, violence um, or anything like that. 
The last one is, I think, even more interesting. If anyone forces you to go the one mile, go with him two miles. This is actually a very common practice in first century with the Roman Empire. And so there was a law stating that if you're a Jewish man, and I'm a Roman soldier, at any point I can conscript, conscript you into serving with me in the military for a short amount of time. This usually took the form of, I've got heavy equipment, and a shield and everything that I'm walking around in. And we're in Israel. We'd rather not be in Israel because it's hot and hot and hot. I can't do this. So I see a male, and I go, look, come here, carry my stuff for a mile. Didn't matter what you were doing, playing with kids, taking care of them, working, hanging out. Any given notice, it's the Roman Empire, you're doing it. But there had been some abuse of this law, and even Caesar had some sort of conscience. And so they made a law to try to prevent abuse of this rule which was you can't have them carry it longer than a mile. Under penalty, if you're caught having them carry it longer than a mile, even if a Jewish person filed a complaint about it, you could be punished, and punished up to death. The Romans took things very seriously and realized killing people was the easiest way to, to get a message across. So imagine this scenario, right? This is not just a message about being nice. If someone asks you to go one mile, go the second mile. Like if someone asks you to mow their front yard, you might as well mow their backyard too. Sure, right? I don't, there's no problem with that. That's nice. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about turning the tables on a Roman soldier in such a way that you're actually posturing generosity and kindness. The soldier says, pick up my stuff. You say, all right, let's go. And you walk and you hit a mile. He's like, all right, I need it back. You're like, nah, dude, I'm good. Like, I got more energy. You just keep on walking. And the soldier's now thinking through all kinds of options. Is he really being kind? Is he trapping me? What if he files a complaint? What if my superior sees this and realizes what's going on? And the roles are now switched. It went from the Roman man forcing the Jewish man to do something to now the Jewish man is forcing the Roman soldier to, in a sense, beg for their stuff back. To say, you've done enough. You've been generous enough. Again, you assert your humanity. You resist. You turn the tables on the powers that be. That's the third way. Yet you do so in a way that's nonviolent. His last prescription here, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. This is a lot more general of a statement. In terms of retaliation, it seems to be uh, in repayment. Okay, So if one's begging or needs to borrow... You give it to them without expecting to get it back. Definitely not adding any interest on this. Um, Biblically, interest is a a bad thing. Um, I had a business ethics professor once who made a very big impact in my life. And business ethics people are known for sliding the rules, right? They're very creative. Should have gone to art school, the way they can interpret certain things. Yet he was a solid Christian and had some really good ideas, actually. He wasn't nonviolent, so I didn't hold that against him. But he had a policy, and his policy was that if someone asks me for money, and I have that money and do not need it, I give it to them. I don't ask about motivations. I don't dig into the need. I don't follow up with how it was used. And he says, it's just me taking what I think is a simple command and trying to be obedient with it. At the same time, he said, I will say no, right? Like if I only have a little bit of money and I need to pay a bill later that month, I don't have the money to let you borrow it. Um, But he says, I've never asked anyone for repayment. If I give, I give freely with no expectation of giving back. Definitely not some kind of loan where I'm going to take advantage of another person and make money off of this. And uh, I don't quite have as much money as him, but I've always tried to kind of implement that practice. It always stood out to me. I was like, wow, this, this guy really takes Jesus' command seriously. And so when I see a homeless person, right, I don't usually carry cash on me, so I'm usually not that much helpful. Um, I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, I got nothing. Um, like I've got a couple quarters over here in the little, like, pocket. You can have them. I don't want to be, like, degrading to you, though. Um, unless, you know, there's a jack-in-the-box around the corner. Me and Lindsay are about to go eat, and I can, be like, I can buy you a meal with, with one of my cards. Um, but if I have a $20 bill on me and there's a homeless person on the street and I'm a, I'm a white American, 
who was raised in the suburbs, um, who was taught to count my own interests first, to protect myself. All of those instincts kick in when I see that homeless person and I'm top of the light. And I'm like, don't make eye contact. Hopefully they won't come up to your car. They come up, I roll my window down, ask them how they're doing. They say, do you have any money that could help? I say, yeah, actually, I've got a $20 bill. Here you go. I hope this helps you. You know, blessings. It's not my job to figure out whether they're going to go buy drugs with it. It's not my job to figure out if they really need it or if they're panhandling as like a second, second hustle. It's my job to give what I have and can give freely. I will not die by losing a $20 bill. This is how rich I am. I can lose a $20 bill in an accident, and I'm okay. It's a pretty good life. The height of luxury. So when someone asks, can I have it? I try to do justice to the example set to me by that ethics professor and give and give freely. I'm not perfect at it, but, but that's always been an inspiring thing for me. Now, just like we've said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. You can go through a lot of these. Jesus was hit and did not hit back. About 20 chapters later in Matthew, Matthew 26, it happens. Jesus is stripped naked and goes with the flow. About one chapter after that in Matthew 27. Jesus seemingly never gets this one mild request from a Roman soldier, but he does have to carry a cross. And he carries it willingly as long as he can and as long as his body holds up. He'd been beaten pretty bad. Jesus seemingly thought that these commands were not unrealistic, that they were practical, that he was meant to live them out. And on multiple occasions, he seemingly thinks his disciples should take him seriously about them. Peter and John encounter a city, and they go, hey, I know it was a good idea. The city rejected us. Jesus, bring down fire. Let's just burn this whole place up. Big bonfire. we get some s'mores out. And this has an Old Testament precedent. This is a very famous act of Elijah. And the text that describes this act of Elijah does it in a positive way. It's praiseworthy. And Jesus looks at Peter and John, and says, that idea is of Satan. This is not, you've misunderstood completely our mission. Now, this is interesting. Seemingly contradicts the Old Testament. I would be extremely interested to hear a conversation at that point between Jesus and Elijah, or Jesus and the person who wrote that Elijah narrative, putting in a positive framework. Because Jesus seems to suggest something's happened over the timeline, at the very least, and now it makes that a negative thing to do. This is no longer what God's intentions are for his leaders and his messengers. When Peter tries to fight, when Jesus is arrested, Jesus not only says stop, and the connotation there is idiot, like you still have not understood this, he also heals the person who was hurt. He does something kind, yet he responds in generosity to his persecutor. And then he lets people in on a secret. The secret is, I don't need your sword if I wanted to fight. That's really cute, Peter. You're batted at a sword that somehow you managed to just cut off an ear. Like, I'm not sure you could do that again if you tried, first of all. But I don't, if I wanted to fight, like, you realize I could snap my fingers. I have thousands of angels here. And we could just zap everybody. I mean, violence is an option for Jesus. And maybe a bigger option for Jesus than it will ever be for any of us, even if we have the nuclear code. And Jesus goes, look, do you not see I'm consciously rejecting this option? This is not how the kingdom works. It's not how God's salvation works. Which is why for me and others, it seems to be an integral part of understanding the gospel. It's hard for me to understand Christianity without some sort of commitment to nonviolence. Because Jesus' very salvation of us involves Loving an enemy in a nonviolent way. Letting yourself be persecuted by that enemy without responding back in kind. In Romans 5, this is God's love for us. While we were enemies, still enemies, his son died for us. To me, this whole paradigm is part of the very logic of how God saved us. 
our, our justification. It's also part of the fabric of discipleship. What it means then after you're saved to start to follow Jesus. Is to follow not only his model in doing things like this, but his teachings and expectations to disciples that they would obey his teachings in doing things like this. There's a quote by a author that I like um, named Yoder. Um, it's a little wordy, but I promise you, if you, you dig in on this, there is some beautiful truth to be found. He says this, particularly in these two passages, the Sermon on the Mount's primary conviction is that the cross, dying, and not the sword, killing, suffering, and not brute power, determines the meaning of history. The key to obedience for God's people is not their effectiveness, but their patience. The triumph of the right or righteous is assured not by the might that comes to their aid, which is, of course, the justification of the use of violence and every other kind of power in human conflict. The triumph of the right or the righteous, although it is assured, is assured because of the power of resurrection and not because of any calculation of causes and effects nor because of the inherently greater strength of the good guys. Watch this. Dig into this. The relationship between the obedience of God's people and the triumph of God's cause, his kingdom coming, is not a relationship of cause and effect, but one of cross and resurrection. How does the kingdom come? Not because we manage to be more powerful and kill off all the bad guys. It's because in many cases we end up dying by the bad guys but God's life-giving power resurrects us. This is where Jesus' victory lied. This is how the kingdom works. This is how kingdom people, where they should find their victory, called to take up their cross, called to possibly die, called to be persecuted in different ways. But it's not our effectiveness in brainstorming that gets us to triumph as righteous people. It's our assuredness that victory is not found in brute power, but instead in suffering and patience and in crosses and ultimately in God's power to resurrect. So here's my parting request as we end the sermon this morning. My, my request is just that you would take this seriously. I know for some of you this might be kind of a new idea. I know for some of you are thinkers, you have a thousand questions about all of this. Right, how it can apply to today, how it can apply to different things, what it would have meant for different historical events. These are all good questions. We might do a Q&A or we might do a little video where I respond to some questions. In fact, I set it up. I haven't tested it. But I think if you email FAQ at sweetwaterchristian.org, um, that, those questions will come in and we'll collect, uh, collect them. You can also email me directly, mike at sweetwaterchristian.org, um, in case that doesn't work. Um, because I know in a sermon I'm not going to be able to really address all those things. And I can tell you this, not every question has a good answer. This is complicated stuff. right? Jesus does not give us an exhaustive list of every possibility. He gives us a handful of concrete things in their world, and then we're supposed to use our moral imagination to see what kind of possibilities might exist for us um, out there as we, we try to take this seriously. I ask you to think about this. I ask you to pray about this. I ask you to think about ways this might apply to current events in your life. With your kids, with your spouses, with your coworkers, with your boss, with neighbors, and current events in this world. Various conflicts, various evils. I'd ask you to think about historical events where you think maybe this kind of strategy has helped solve a problem. Or equally, historical events where you can't see the strategy helping as much as the violence that was used to solve the problem at the time. Part of preaching and part of being a community of faith is not complete agreement on every issue. I don't expect any of us really to come down to the same exact place on some of these issues. But it is part of the contract that we challenge each other, convict each other, and make us ask questions with one another. And that to the best of our ability, living together, interpreting the Bible together, not as one voice, but as a community of voices, 
that we might faithfully, as faithfully as we can through the power of the Holy Spirit, follow Jesus. And so it's Jesus we worship. It's Jesus' teachings that we take seriously and do our best to follow. As we come to the table, we're reminded that it's Jesus' example, that it's Jesus' life itself that embodies this kind of love and that has allowed for our salvation. In fact, I think the more you worship Jesus dying on the cross while you're an enemy of God, the more you're impelled unconsciously to start to think that way and see someone who's a horrible human being and go, well, technically I was an enemy of God. And he showed the most love for me that any human being, any being in the world could possibly show. So maybe I should slow my role and my anger and my retaliation and my revenge towards that person. So I think really worship might be the cure for understanding this. It might be the cure for having our imaginations transformed. So we come to the table, we worship the one who died on our parts. And we did not deserve it when we were enemies. And yet he has saved us and called us to follow him into his kingdom life. And that's something to be praised. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the ability to think through them honestly, not afraid of, of criticism or judgment. We appreciate the, the chance to dialogue, to ask questions, to interpret together instead of as individuals. And we pray that you would allow us to be challenged, our assumptions to be challenged, my assumptions to be challenged, that you'd allow us to, um, together with love and unity, pursue a way towards peace, pursue a way towards faithfully following you. In what's honestly, God, a very confusing world. Our goal is to look more like you, to talk like you and to pray like you and to worship like you and relate to others like you. We're far from that goal. I'm far from that goal. We pray that your spirit would empower us to make progress, to make slow and steady steps towards that. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we pray. Amen. We'll now participate.